This is the world of multi-employer benefit funds with Tracy Doherty Shanklin. We believe in demystifying retirement solutions, upholding retiree dignity, and contributing to economic stability through union organizing, pension reform, and legislative activism. In short, we're devoted to busting myths about the labor movement. If you're interested in the enduring power of labor, well, you've landed in the right place. Experts and activists will share their insights, expertise, and stories. Time is short, so let's get started. If you're just joining us on the podcast, my guest is Cassie Waters. Cassie is the organizing coordinator for District 3 of the Communication Workers of America. CWA District 3 covers the Southeast United States and Puerto Rico. Cassie has dedicated her entire career to activism and grassroots organizing. Is CWA seeing more organizing among millennials or Gen Zs? Definitely. At all levels, it feels like organizing is becoming more, people are becoming more aware of it and having access to what it means and to some of the tools for how to organize and then are reaching out in larger numbers to our union and to other unions. Is there any particular industry that seems to be more dominated with the millennial and Gen Z generations? It seems like all of these industries we've been talking about, so tech and game, as well as nonprofit, on the campus level, we certainly see graduate students as well as undergraduates organizing. So I think in all of those industries, we're seeing a lot of folks from that those generations. So organizing has been, uh, I think, a very newsworthy topic. To your point, there's an uptick in the amount of calls you're getting and that kind of thing. And I've had many conversations with other guests regarding the next generation of leaders. And we touched on with the CWA's affiliate, the United Campus Workers at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. I loved how student faculty and staff united, which I think is such an important piece to getting things done. And your role gives you like a front row seat to how this generation or the next generation is feeling and what is their push? Is it is it still the dignity and respect you speak to or is there something else that's motivating them? Because it seems to be a very activist-driven generation. It's the same basic issues. You know, I think people are tired of being overworked or not having enough work, whether it's that they're industry is being part-timed and they can't get enough hours or benefits or they're being overworked. We're seeing both of that. Um, But the basic, the same issues are present. I think people certainly talk more about some of these ethical issues and the impact that their employer has on the climate or, for instance, their ties to certain Industries, whether that's the criminal justice system or to other corporations that show up on campuses or make partnerships with universities, calling those things out, the role their employer plays in the world, I think is another important difference. If you had to define it, 
who is this new generation of leader? I think it's yet to be seen because part of what to me needs to also unfold is the sort of meshing of the worlds of the generations of if this new workforce is going to become part of existing union locals, the the two-way street, the intergenerational learning process has to unfold still, I think, to a large extent. Or will we see, I think we'll see that and a combination of forming new locals where people are becoming leaders for the first time. And so have to experience what that looks and feels like. And then hopefully we'll see some mentoring happening. And that's where I think a group like Will Empower is a really good example of trying to foster some of that. Yeah. It's interesting because we're at a time where we'll pre-COVID and I'm, I'm not going to date this exactly right, but there was a lot of talk about like company ethos. Like what do they stand for? What is their internal work sort of personality? And it sounds like more and more that's being exposed in this moment where we're coming off of a moment that is being coined as the great resignation. A lot of that seems to be driven by like these toxic work environments. And I think as you were saying it, I wrote down the mentorship programs are such an important piece where this idea that these companies almost embrace in a new way, but an old way of grooming people for the next year of their career. Are you doing anything like that? Or are you, are you educating employers on how they might implement systems like that? Well, I would say workers themselves could be the engineers for those kinds of programs, but their voice is not going to be heard unless they organize, especially if it includes suggestions about sharing power and control. And that's, that's what a union is, is an effort to right, force an employer to share power and control. And so if a workplace is organizing, then the union of the workers there, I think, will have more success at some real change by organizing around those issues and creating campaigns that put pressure on employers to make good on some of those promises. You're talking about this coming from inside. So we're seeing more of these homegrown acts of solidarity and affiliate union activity. And I mean, what do you think workers, whether union or non-union, should know about the union brand that maybe they didn't know or were not aware of? I think it's just really important for people to realize that the friction that they might experience, and that's putting it nicely on the job, is about management using power and control. The only path to changing that is to use your collective power as workers, as employees, and to organize because, right, power concedes nothing without a demand. That's a Frederick Douglass quote, and it's being used right now in, in a campaign I'm involved with, with CWA called Call Center Workers United, right, where you have a federal contractor, an entity that 
our federal government has contracted with the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services to do all the customer service work. But, right, they have had to fight to have the $15 minimum wage, which Biden did institute for federal contractors. But what about their ability to organize and to have the employer be neutral? And so that's one of their current demands, that campaign with this corporation called Maximus. But, you know, will the Biden administration step up to help allow that, given that this is a federal contractor? This is somebody that we're paying to do this work. And so people to know, people to know that how important it is to ask themselves, how could the world be different? And that unions are a really important part of that answer. Together, we can use our power. There's a different way of doing this. Often, a life trajectory can be determined unfairly by race or sexual orientation or zip code. How is the CWA addressing economic and structural barriers that can help this new generation of leaders, regardless of what generation they come from? Yeah, I think paying attention to mentorship and to mentoring people of color or right whoever are, is reflected in, in our workforce needs to be reflected in our leadership. And so creating pipelines uh, where people can be mentored into more leadership roles, I think is one commitment that's been made internally. And so I think taking on issues like racial justice in public as a union is another important way. We had a day of action about George Floyd that created a lot of conversation in the union. I think it's important to be as visible as we can together with others in the labor movement in the streets in moments like that, because that's whenever people understand what's possible. But in terms of the mentorship piece, I did put Will Empower in the chat there, Women Innovating Labor Leadership. Lane Wyndham is one of the people who got that started, among others. And it seems like an important, very new, but growing opportunity to have people enter into apprenticeships. I know we had people in United Campus Workers participating in that. I hope to see programs like that grow that can partner with unions and organizations to help people step into more leadership. Yeah, we'll be sure to link that in our show notes for this episode. You talk about the George Floyd. I'm a white mother, obviously, but I have a Black daughter. And personally, I've learned that it's it's not enough to acknowledge that there's a race problem in America, but that I personally must find a way to be part of the solution. So I think you mentioned it already, but we're witnessing a shift in awareness in my industry, which is the investment industry, thanks to the Time's Up and Me Too and Black Lives Matters movements. That's really forcing all, all of us to elevate our diversity report cards. So your work gets you really up close and personal with this undercurrent. Are you seeing companies, I mean, do more to achieve diversity or are they doing the right thing without necessarily being pushed by the union? 
I don't think that it happens without pressure. And I don't think it's real without organized pushes because I, I do think there is a danger of buying into some sort of illusion of diversity, equity, and inclusion programs that don't address real questions of power. And I think that comes back to organizing and to the presence of unions in workplaces, which is the only thing that really forces the sharing of power and control. And so if programs like that can be part of what a given union addresses, like how do we make this program real? And we as the employees need to have a voice and we need to have seats at the table when you're deciding on the priorities. That's how those programs, I think, are going to be made to be more real. Yeah, it's an ongoing report card, if you will. Like when you have that organized or collective voice of people, I think we have to do a better job of changing the way maybe companies even go about looking for employees doing more to to broaden that thinking to for these companies to get bold and step outside of their box of what where they're even looking for their employees mm-hmm. so post covid we've had the most unusual job market the latest us bureau of labor statistics report has come out and shown that there were 4 million it's 4,527,000 quits in November 2021, which shattered all records. And September's were higher than August. So they, they've been growing and it just it's a trend that doesn't appear to be stopping. So as an organizer, what do you think is fueling all this discontent and causing such a reshuffling in the workforce? Yeah, I think... Some of it is people asking, how could the world be different? And if people aren't making enough to live on or if they're not being treated well, what all the, are the alternatives? It's like the need to make a living and be treated well on the job is, I think, one of the biggest factors driving it. And I think the surge in organizing is showing that as well. Are you seeing any fringe benefits emerging as hot buttons? Benefits like healthcare or pension plans or any of those? I think healthcare is a huge issue across the board. These workers I mentioned who work for Maximus in these call centers doing customer service for Medicare, Medicaid, and CDC, among other contracts that they have, state and federal. They themselves have a huge deductible and they just had a a small victory in pushing for better health care. But those things don't happen without pressure and exposing. Again, this is a federal contractor. How is it that they're the ones talking to people about affordable health care over the phone and they themselves don't have it? And so by pointing that out, I think we've seen you know, some small wins. There's a lot further to go. Pensions, I could talk to you about that for a while, just having worked with the public sector and with United Campus Workers and a pension attack that happened in 
around 2014 in Tennessee, where they changed the state retirement system from guaranteed benefit to a hybrid plan that included a 401k. This is very common, but they did it in the same year that our our state plan won the award for the best managed plan of its kind in the nation. 95 plus percent funded, no issue. However, right, it's the higher levels. It's like the Moody's bond rating was going to affect our state's rating because pensions are now considered a liability on the state's report card. Why did that happen? If not to just take people's money and put it right into the cloud to be able to gamble with. And it's like, there was no problem. We had done all the right things and yet they still changed the state pension because of these larger forces at work. But one of the ways they were selling it, the same governor Haslam, his administration was selling it was young people today want flexibility. Young people today don't want to be tied to one job for their life. But if they do have a job, shouldn't they earn a pension? Yeah, I could opine on a little bit of this, um, but we are short of time. But I will say that I've done a lot of conversations on hybrids. And while I'm a proponent of them as a solution to a failing plan, it is a shame to hear that they're being used in a time when there's there's no need because defined benefit right. are just are have proven over time to be the best source of retirement income and really are a promise to have a retirement with dignity and it's a shame to hear think those stories as for young people i think part of the problem is well, look, when you're young, you're not thinking about what am I going to do when I retire or how am I going to support myself or any of those things. And those are conversations or educational pieces that need to be brought in early or in people's life, regardless of whether you have a pension plan or a 401k there. It's a meaningful conversation. And it is a little soapbox issue for me that I think mm-hmm. we're missing a massive piece to really the economic security and what could be a retirement crisis of right. a massive magnitude if we don't deal with it. So based on your experience partnering, do you think labor union organizing can be re-energized by taking advantage of this unique, I think, moment of worker activism? I think we've got to build our capacity to be able to seize on it. So there is a bit of having to rise to the challenge. So will we invest in organizing? Will we invest in what it's going to take to seize the moment? I think is a really important question for the whole labor movement. According to a Pew Research report I read, a third of the voters in 2020 identified as independent at 34%, while 33% identified as Democrats and 29 identified as Republicans. If we look at our current political divide and with more than a third of all voters identifying as independent, can you, or can, do you think this can, this new American majority could be the beginning of a third party political party? It could, it could very well. I think 
people are going to watch what our existing parties do. Not just what they say, but what they do. And so they'll make their voting decisions accordingly. And having an alternative, I think, is important to create some pressure to make change and to listen to the will of the people. When Biden took office, he proclaimed that he would be the most pro-labor president of our time. And I'm wondering if you could help us understand if there's an appetite for pro-worker conversation in the political climate today. I think there is. These things never happen without active movements of people pressuring. Voters, working people, union members, community members pushing. You know, it's, it's, I don't think we've ever seen a president, and I don't think we ever will, that's just going to deliver on promises without any movement from people and collective action. I do think we're seeing significant changes in, for instance, the National Labor Relations Board makeup, and they're the regulatory body for labor law, for federal labor law. I think the appointment of the Secretary of Labor was significant with Marty Walsh. I think some of the task force that have been created and the access that workers have to speak in hearings, some CWA members have been able to do that. And then some of these massive bills represent what's possible, but it has to go a lot further. I don't think it will without very significant movements from millions of people becoming active in their workplaces, you know, and in the streets. So before we sign off, is there anything that you would like to leave our listeners with or that you think they should know about you or about the labor movement? I'm personally inspired by and excited by Jane McAlevey and some of the programs that she has been initiating with um, trainings for any worker, any group of workers who want to sign up. Uh, it's called Organizing for Power. She's partnered with an institute. She's got several books out, but just that model that this is up to us, like this is up to workers to learn how to do this, to create high participation unions, or if you don't have a union, to figure out how to form one. And so those trainings being offered on a large scale is very inspiring. To me, it's not necessarily any particular union. It's open to all. So I just wanted to make sure people were aware of, of that. Well, I really appreciate you being part of the conversation today. And I appreciate your time. And I look forward to seeing great things from the CWA and your work as an organizer. Thank you for having me. It's a really great conversation. I appreciate it. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please consider supporting us with a voluntary contribution at www.patreon.com forward slash multi-employer funds. That's www.patreon.com forward slash multi-employer funds. Or you can subscribe to us and leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many other podcast platforms. 
And of course, you can always find us on our website at www.multiemployerfunds.com. That's www.multiemployerfunds.com. Here you can find our entire podcast library and join our newsletter. Thanks again for joining the conversation where listeners connect with leading experts throughout the multi-employer world. Be part of the change. And that's it for this week's episode of the World of Multi-Employer Benefit Funds. We'd love to have your support. You can show your support by sharing episodes, making comments, or heading over to www.patreon.com slash multi-employer funds for other partnership opportunities. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to the next time. CSU Partners LLC hosts the World of Multi-Employer Benefit Funds podcast, which contains content and discussions that have been prepared for informational and educational purposes only. No listener should assume that any discussion on this podcast serves as the receipt of or substitute for personalized advice from an investment professional, as the information provided on the podcast is not intended to be investment, legal, or tax advice. The company is not an SEC-registered investment advisor and does not solicit clients or raise capital for money managers. CSU Partners offers securities through XD Capital Partners, LLC.